Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Pat's Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. By two ways, one passion food truck, St. Aloysius Church over in Jackson, New Jersey. By Budweiser and Castrol Motor Oil. Things going on in the world of sports. Obviously, there's always something going on. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the Open, the British Open, the Scottish Open, or whatever you want to talk about or call it. It's going on right now, of course, in Scotland right now. We got a couple of baseball topics we're going to hit up today. Um, I'm sticking on the from the history standpoint. Talk a little bit about Holmes Ali. Uh, you talk about two of the greatest heavyweight champions in the history of the world, and obviously one time, you know, August or what was it, October second, 1980, they fought in a ring. Obviously, two different parts of their careers, but we'll touch on that in a little bit. But just a reminder: the show, of course, belongs to you. So anything that's on your mind in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America, you could bring up. Um, if you're watching the YouTube premiere, you could comment during the live stream. You could also comment on Periscope or Facebook Live. And if that doesn't work for you, give the show a call. The number is 732-364-3598. That's 732-364-3598. And, you know, you see sometimes... And obviously in the world of social media, the ability to find a video and certainly set it out there and get millions and millions of views, you know, has to matter about what the topic is or how, you know, I guess provoking or polarizing the video is to a point where people are going to want to see it. And you also have to deal with the problem that you've seen over the last couple of years with hot mics and microphones that are set up that are picking up, you know, F-bombs and curse words that are coming out left and right. And one of the ones that kind of stood out a couple of years ago was the Terry Collins video, the day Noah Syndergaard got thrown out in the game against the Los Angeles Dodgers, thrown behind Chase Utley, Adam Amari was a home plate umpire, and the hot mics picked up Terry Collins and everything that he said during the exchange with first Hamari and then Tom Hallian. And you had another hot mic situation happen the other day with the New York Yankees and Tampa Bay Rays game. Aaron Boone letting out a little frustration, maybe not a ton of reason to be frustrated, but you know he felt that the, the umpire, the home plate umpire, in this case Brennan Miller, made a bad call. And he kind of let him have it, have it to a point where he's going to be thrown out of the game. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think Aaron Boone did anything wrong. I think he did a good job sticking up for his player. You know, Brett Gardner in that in that case is is, be, is looking at it and saying this pitch was considerably off the plate and if you look at the replay of the pitch, it was probably a ball, but you got to be kind of looking in Yankee tunnel vision, which I'm going to touch on in a little bit to say that it was a ridiculous call or a call that was so far you know, away. It wasn't like uh, Levon Hernandez, Eric Gregg in the, you know, the 1997 National League Championship Series. I mean, Eric Gregg was giving him about a foot off the plate. You're talking about a pitch that missed, but didn't miss by that much. Now, like I said, if you're a batter, you're upset, you're Brett Gardner in that situation, and you want to let the home plate umpire have it, you know what? You got the right to express your opinion. And if you're Aaron Boone from the dugout and that bothers you, you don't like that call, you think that the umpire... In, in Boone's words, you know, had a bad start to the game or, you know, use the, you know words that I'm not going to use on this program, 
he's got the right to feel that way. But one thing I did want to bring up, and this hasn't been brought up in this discussion at all, it hasn't had anything to do with anything that you've heard on talk radio or the internet, is the way that the home plate umpire conducted himself. And you've heard me for years rant and talk about the ridiculousness of umpires who understand, and I think anybody as a human being can understand that umpires are human beings and they're not going to be perfect. They're going to miss a call every once in a while. Some umpires are better at acknowledging that maybe they missed a call or maybe they made a mistake, and others are pompous jerk-offs. And we've seen that happen many, many times where an umpire makes a blatantly terrible call, you know, i.e. Angel Hernandez, i.e. Bob Davidson, and then when they get confronted about it, they, you know, grow rabbit ears and they want to throw everybody out of the game. This was a situation the, the other week that Brennan Miller, and I feel the need to bring his name up because, you know, I'm sorry for all these side topics that I'm bringing up here, but you've heard me talk for years about umpires' names needing to be thrown out there. This guy's a bad umpire. That guy's a bad umpire. This guy, for whatever reason, keeps getting caught up in these controversies or issues. Now, that's not the way I'm going with Brennan Miller. I think Brennan Miller did an outstanding job yesterday. Now, if you're a Yankees fan, you're going to be like, John, shut up. I'm not even going to listen to this. The guy made a bad call, threw Aaron Boone out of the game. You know, there's probably not enough evidence that would back up a statement that you may want to make to say Brennan Miller is a good umpire. Now, I didn't say that, but I think Brennan Miller conducted himself like a true professional in a way where a lot of veteran umpires and other umpires out there should take notice to the way that he handled the situation. Now listen, the call is subjective. And until we have the days of robotic umpires, you're not gonna be in a situation where you could do anything about that. Hey, call was off, off the plate, you can't review it. It's not part of the review process and I don't think it ever will be part of the review process. But when we talk about balls and strikes, we understand that they are very subjective. And Brendan Miller made a, may have made a mistake the pitch looked like it was a ball, but like I said, it wasn't a ball by much. We were talking about a foot inside. You're talking about a ball that, yeah, was a little bit off the plate, and the umpire called it a strike. Brett Gardner had every right to be upset. Aaron Boone had every right to be upset. Now, as Aaron Boone's barking from the dugout, as obviously you're looking at this viral video, and it's something you can watch over and over again. We know about the effing the savages. And that's obviously going to be something that's going to be with Aaron Boone, probably gained a lot of respect for New York Yankees fans, you know, by saying the things that he said. Hey, our guys are effing savages. There's Yankees fans that are going to remember that for history. It's probably changed some of the perception that some Yankee fans may have about Aaron Boone. Now, you know, in the city of New York, it's a city of fans that always are going to hate their manager or hate their coach. So there are Yankees fans that don't like Aaron Boone for whatever reason. The guy won last year, the team won over 100 games. He got one of the best teams in baseball this year. For anybody to be down on Aaron Boone, I think would be, would be a little bit silly. So anybody that had doubts was probably like, hey, I like this guy. I like how he sticks up for his team. I like how he sticks up for Brett Gardner in that spot. You know, Brett Gardner, probably a little bit over the top with, you know, bashing the bat up against the, the, the top of the dugout, you know, kind of going on a little bit. You know, that was a little overboard. But Aaron Boone saw the call, thought it was a little off the plate, 
let the Empire have it from the dugout for a considerable period of time. This wasn't a word. And rabbit ears come out and the Empire says, hey, what did you say? This wasn't an ump show. Now, if you call that an ump show, you don't understand what an ump show is. The Empire may have made a bad call. He may have called a pitch that was a ball, a strike. But he didn't show up the manager. He didn't show up the player. He stood with his mask on behind the home plate and basically listened to Aaron Boone yell explicatives at him for a series of minutes. And he mentions a couple times, I hear you, Aaron. I heard you, Aaron. Enough. He's given him the opportunity. He's trying to defuse the situation. He didn't make it about himself. He wasn't Bob Davidson. He wasn't Joe West. And you know you've heard me talk about umpires that make the game all about themselves. Brennan Miller understood the situation, understood that maybe the manager has the right to be upset. Maybe even in his own mind is acknowledging that that might have been a borderline pitch. And is giving the manager time and chance again, another chance, another chance. All right, that's enough. And finally, he has no choice to throw him out. Like I said, Aaron Boone in that spot, you know, is probably saying, hey, I'm going to get myself thrown out. I'm going to keep chirping until I do get thrown out. That's what managers do. You know, they want to protect their players. They don't want to see their players get thrown out. So he did a good job sticking up for his player. But in no way, shape, or form did this umpire do anything to compromise the integrity of being an umpire. And it's something that I've taken shots at for years, and I feel the need to open the show up today with, because this umpire handled himself with utmost and true professionalism. And it's something that you don't see, especially in home plate umpire situations. These umpires, they think they got all this power. They make the game about them. And I mention his name, Brennan Miller, because I gained a ton of respect for him. Did he miss a call? Maybe. Probably. And I'm sure it wasn't the only one that he missed. But I'm sure if you're an umpire in Major League Baseball, you're not you're gonna you're not gonna go through a game without missing a call, without calling a pitch that's borderline one way or the other, and you can look at, you know, stat cast and a pitch tracker and say, Yeah, maybe that was a little off the plate. Or maybe you didn't call that a strike and it looks like it's on the black. But I give this guy a ton of credit because he conducted himself like a true adult. He conducted himself the way a Major League Baseball umpire is supposed to handle himself. And I think that's a great job. So in the days where we're throwing out umpires' names that are always caught up in controversy, that can't take a little heat, from a pitcher call that may be a little bit borderline, that can't wait to make the game about them, Brendan Miller handled himself like a true professional, an example of the way an umpire is supposed to conduct themselves. If you happen to be in the Scranton, Pennsylvania area, check out Two Ways, One Passion food truck, located on Nayog Avenue and Green Ridge Street in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, they sent a lot of pictures. If you could check out their page on Facebook, Two Ways, One Passion, Two, the number two, W-A-Y-Z-O-N-E, Passion. 
They show some pictures of a lot of the food that they serve and, you know, our, our great establishment. Um, if you're interested, it's located in Nayog Avenue, Green Ridge Street in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Telephone number is 570-500-8115. That's 570-800-8115. So switching over to talk about the New York Mets, but not about the team, about what is in a small area a representation of what the team is. And I think about it because I put myself in a lot of people's shoes. I say, hey, if, if this was me, how would I conduct myself? And you look at the beat writers of the New York Mets franchise. And you know that it's come a long way since the days of Marty Noble. And Marty Noble, may you rest in peace, he passed away within the last year, really exemplified the way a team was and was supposed to be covered. You see it on shows. You hear it if you're listening to them being interviewed on the radio or on television. Um, and mostly through the world of Twitter. You have a series of guys that are covering the Mets that you, you might want to question whether or not that's even what they want to do for a living. Let, a know, let alone the team that they want to cover. You know, Mark Carrig did a great job for years for Newsday covering the Mets. He now covers the Yankees for the Athletic. Probably a promotion. I remember Andy McCullough for the, uh, the Star-Ledger covered the Mets for a little while, ended up going to the Yankees. And, and I think in some cases you could talk about these individual writers and maybe they have a preference. Maybe they are a Yankees fan. Maybe... Writers aren't being recruited into the beat anymore that have that passion and may support that team. Like you look at the Mets broadcasting team as we hit what we'll call the opening point here at a pass ball show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. But, you know, maybe it is a particular fandom. You know, you say writers that cover a team for a series of years may not have grown up a fan of that particular team, but over time, maybe they grow a little fondness or a little bit of a closeness to the team. You get to see the players every day. You get to be around the team. You get to see every game beginning to end. You're covering it from before the first pitch to after the last pitch. You may grow a little bit of fondness towards the team, but if you look at the guys that cover the New York Mets for their beat, it almost seems like they all despise the team. And I think that's a point where maybe there should be some changes made. You got Anthony DeComo going out there calling out Noah Syndergaard because he didn't give him an interview after a game. Now, the game the other day went 16 innings. Noah Syndergaard pitched the first seven innings. Why is he going to take such a passive-aggressive shot through Twitter at one of the team's best players? And Noah Syndergaard did a good job. He responded back said basically it was, was asinine to say that. You impacted our relationship or changed it in one tweet. Congratulations. But, you know, I don't see another team in baseball, and I follow all teams, and I follow stories that are written by all different writers in all different regions of the country. But when it comes to the New York Mets, it seems to have a, there seems to be almost this aura, not necessarily in the locker room when you can knock the Mets as a team, 
but this aura in the press room that is almost toxic. And I wonder if there's anything that's going to be done about it. Because you can talk about the media and as much attention, you know, the Ken Rosenthal's and the national people that took shots at Mickey Calloway and Jason Vargas for the way they conducted themselves during that press conference. Now, once again, we don't know all the details. We just know that it looks bad anytime a manager curses at a writer and a player has to be restrained from trying to attack a writer. It obviously looks bad for them. There's no question about that. You can't deny that that's an absolute undisputed fact. But there is a little bit more to the story. You, you, you may, we may never know what caused that. See you tomorrow. Do you think a manager is going to flip out and a player is going to try to attack that writer for just saying, see you tomorrow? There's more evidence of a level of tox, toxicness, and I, I sorry, I couldn't come up with a better word there, that exists amongst the press and the beat writers that cover the New York Mets. And I don't think this is getting spoken about enough. Sure, I think fans are seeing the passive-aggressive tweets. You know, Anthony DeComo's tweet the other day. You could tell maybe there's a divide between the New York Mets as an organization and the writers. And that's something that the writers may at some point speak up about. Maybe they're treated so poorly by the Mets that they may not want to do it. The only reason that they do it is because they get paid for it. And may decide in certain instances to take shots at the team that they represent. But you don't see that in other teams. In fact, you have to look at extremely bad situations. And this New York Mets team right now, it isn't a playoff team. It isn't very good. But I'll tell you, it's not, it's not to a point where it's a complete dumpster fire. And if you follow the press and the way they cover this team, they really make it out to be a lot worse than it really is. The New York Mets got Pete Alonso, Jeff McNeil, All-Stars, and essentially they're, you know, both their first full season in the major leagues. There's a lot to be excited about. Yeah, the only thing that's going to change that is some wins. You know, the manager, I don't know. It'll probably take a lot in the second half of the season to see him come back next year. But, you know, I look as a, as a Mets fan as long as I've been, and I've seen situations that were a lot worse than what you're seeing on a day-in and day-out basis, but the media is portraying it in such a negative way. They're portraying it in such a worse way than it really is. And I hate to say it because anybody in the press, anybody in the media is not going to want to hear this. Maybe it's time that some of those writers that are covering the Mets on a day-in and day-out basis start looking at themselves in a mirror. Now, I never heard anything bad about Tim Healy. You know, he gets mentioned because of, of course, you know, the heated exchange with Mickey Calloway, Mickey Calloway kind of going off on him. You know, everything I've heard about him, hey, he's a nice guy. But there's got to be something deeper into there that would say, hey, are they being maybe passive aggressive in the way that they're speaking to him in a line of, a line of questions? Obviously, Anthony Nicomo, he was out of line the other day. Out of all things that happened in a 16-inning baseball game, which, by the way, Noah Syndergaard pitched pretty well, he decided to take a passive-aggressive shot at him. For what? Not answering the media after the game? Not every player's got to be available after every game. I'm sorry. And you can talk about that, and I'm sure people in the media will dispute that with me. 
It's an obligation, sure. I think if there's a major story going on, I think if there's something very serious that involves you, either off the field or on the field, I think you should address the press. But it's not a mandate. And it's not a mandate that every single player should stand at the front of their locker after every game. It's good for those that do it. But that other game, the game that's being referenced, Noah Syndergaard didn't do anything wrong there. He didn't blow the game. He pitched seven shutout innings, went back and forth with Madison Bumgarner in what essentially was a rematch of the 2016 NL wildcard game. He did his job. Game goes 16 innings. He might have, he, he, he might have had some place to go. There was nothing that happened involving him that was controversial that would require him to have to be there in front of reporters. But of course, you got the bitterness and the you know the level of toxic that exists amongst the Met, the Mets beat writers every day, and they want to make that out into a story. So I'm starting to question once again the press in a situation, and maybe some of these individual outlets should stand up and look at the reporters that they have covered in the New York Mets. Some of them may be the nicest guys in the world. But why don't you put out a possibility that maybe you'll bring in somebody that is a fan, somebody that supports the team, somebody that is going to put a positive spin on that team for your newspaper. And I know New York is not big about putting out good publicity about the New York Mets. You know, Wallace Matthews calling Mike Piazza gay. You know, meet the mutts after the Mets lost the first two games of the 1986 World Series. It, the New York media always seems to want to take shots at the Mets. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with the little brother, big, big brother relationship between the Mets and the New York Yankees. But you, know, you wonder if it's just the reporters that are coming in, or maybe it is you know, the newspapers and the online websites that have this perception of what the New York Mets are supposed to be or are and say this is the way that you have to report. You gotta be negative towards them. You gotta treat them basically like they're a piece of crap. Because that's the way they're being treated. And it's okay if the fans are upset with their performance. It's okay if you know the players may be upset with the team's performance. But it really isn't cool for the writers on a consistent basis to put out, you know, negative vibes and have that negative aura to that. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights, granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for the entertainment of our audience. Any publication, reproduction, or other use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts in the show without the express written consent of the Passball Show, JohnPielli.com and JohnPielli LLC, is prohibited. Any commercial or other use of the program, such as by charging admission for a showing, is similarly prohibited. So, October 2nd, 1980, was a big day in professional boxing history. And if you go back in that time and you're old enough to remember it, you know that it was something that probably wasn't as anticipated as what it's going to end up being remembered as. But you had, uh, yeah, you probably can't see it in the corner. I got the poster up there, Caesars Palace, the last hurrah for the World Heavyweight Championship. Larry Holmes against Muhammad Ali in Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. And as history goes on, you would talk about two of the greatest champions the World Boxing Heavyweight Division has ever had. Unfortunately, one was on his way up, 
and the other was on his way down. In fact, if you go back to that fight, you could probably dispute whether it should have ever taken place. The more stories that are put out there about it, you hear that Muhammad Ali was low on money, probably needed to take the, the payday. But you also had seen the decline of Muhammad Ali, not necessarily in wins and losses, but in the quality of his fights. And of course, Muhammad Ali, who spends the last you know 35 years of his life having to deal with the constant blows to his head and you know the mental issues that are involved in that and obviously wasn't the same person had a hard time you know being able to ca you know, have a casual conversation in the latter years of his life and some people say that one of the turning points were some of the blows that he took to the head from Larry Holmes in that fight now Larry Holmes goes back he was Muhammad Ali's sparring partner had a great deal of respect for Muhammad Ali and you heard time and time again that Larry Holmes didn't want to take this fight. It wasn't about being afraid of Ali. It was just a fight that he preferred not to have. Ali, getting towards the end of his career, which he was. He only had one more fight after that. He lost to Trevor Burbick in 1981. But this was a time where Muhammad Ali really was in the twilight of his fighting career. Now, had the fight maybe taken place, I don't know, three or four years before, maybe in 76, 77, something like that, I think it would have been something that might have been a little more special. Because I think Muhammad Ali had a little more left at that point. Now he's dealing with what probably turns out to be CTE for the amount of blows to the head that he, that he, that he suffered over the course of his career. And you throw in the fact, of course, that Larry Holmes would have preferred to avoid this fight. And I do believe from watching tape of that fight, and I'm sure Larry Holmes would back this up if he, if he was on the show with me right now, I'm sure he took it easy on Ali. You know, there was no examples looking through that entire fight of Larry Holmes really trying to hurt Muhammad Ali. He boxed him. Yeah, he, he hit him when he had open opportunities too. But it's not like he went out there throwing, you know, ridiculous roundhouse kicks and uppercuts trying to throw Ali to the floor. He ends up winning the fight. You know, Ali fights one more time in his career. He loses to Burbeck, and then he, he retires. But you know about the impact that boxing had on Muhammad Ali from a physical and mental standpoint. It really messed up the rest of his life. Now, obviously, he's a legend. You know, the story and the, the chronicalization of Muhammad Ali's life is something that will, will never be forgotten. You could talk about everything that Muhammad Ali dealt with and went through forever. But you, know, you look at the fight against Larry Holmes, and I, I, I believe, and I know we're talking about almost 40 years later, it's probably a fight that shouldn't have happened. Now, had it happened, or had it not happened, is there any evidence that Muhammad Ali would have been okay? Because once again, you know, we're looking at this fight and you're not seeing Larry Holmes really go out of his way to try to hurt Ali. And he didn't. He beat him, he outboxed him, he clearly won the fight. But from a punch-to-punch -punch standpoint, he's not out there trying to hurt him. And I think he understood that, that he was dealing with a diminished fighter, a fighter that was not the same. 
you know, he didn't go out there and talk a ton of trash about it, but I think he held a calm respect for the man and said, listen, we'll do this if we have to, but I'm also not going to go out there and try to hurt you. And you wonder if, from Ali's perspective, it was maybe some fights from before, the Frazier fights. He took a lot of shots to the head during, during all the Frazier fights. You know, even in some of the fights that he ended up winning, you know, he took some, some massive shots from George Foreman, even though he, he clearly won that fight. But I look back on it, and it's, it's funny to, to look back, and you think of some of the great matchups in boxing history. And, you know, you talk about Jack Dempsey and Jack Johnson and Rocky Marciano and, you know, Sonny Liston and Floyd Patterson. You know, Tyson and Evander Holyfield and Riddick Bowe and Lennox, Lennox Lewis. And any time a couple of those all-time greats go in the same ring, go out there and fight each other, it's a big deal. And the memory of Holmes Ali, we know it happened, unfortunately is diminished a little bit because it wasn't Ali in his prime. And you can make the case, sure, it'd be a good discussion. Would Ali in his prime be able to beat Holmes in his prime? I think it would be a hell of a fight. You know, Larry Holmes, the the best heavyweight champion in regards to title defenses. You went know, what five years where he was the heavyweight title back at a time where the heavyweight champion actually took on a series of fights over the course of the year. And man, I don't want to get too much off topic, but it's amazing how poor the state of professional boxing is. It's nowhere near what it was, even in the 90s. And obviously, it's glory days were in the, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. We had some of the greatest champions to ever exist in the sport. And Larry Holmes was certainly one of the best and greatest heavyweight champions that the sport and the heavyweight division have ever had. He defended his title successfully more times than anybody else. But my question is, did the Holmes-Ali fight have to happen? I know Ali wanted to pay that. He needed the money. Larry Holmes probably didn't need it. Larry Holmes didn't even want it. This is the famous Budweiser beer. We know of no brand produced by any other brewer that costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability you'll find at no beer at any cost. So you got the open which, i got to be honest, in the United States, we could call it the British Open. I understand in England and in Scotland where they, they, they make this tournament like it's one of the greatest tournaments in the entire world, and it's big. There's no question about it. It's up there. It's popularity throughout the world. It's something that is worth talking about. But when it says, hey, it's the Open, as if it's the tournament of all tournaments... We don't really believe that here in the United States. Now, we can talk about or dispute the popularity of golf in the United States, but I think as gambling has become more of an accepted thing and legalized in a lot of states, and the fact that you could online bet, you could bet off your phone, uh, the popularity of golf in this country has grown. Outside of the diehards, those that were going to like golf regardless, there are more elements that are there to bring more casual fans into the game. So I think the popularity of golf on a national stage here in the United States has grown to a point where, you know, it's probably at an all-time high now. 
But, you know, you look at the British Open, which obviously is held in Scotland this year, and I was looking at a series of champions, players that have won this tournament in the past, and I think there was a total of 12 that ended up being in this tournament this year. Now, obviously, you win a major like that, you're going to be invited back time after time. You probably, you know, you probably got a certain amount of years you could participate in the tournament as long as you're healthy enough. So there's a handful of guys that didn't participate this year. But out of the 12 players that have won previous British Open titles, only five of them ended up making a cut. So seven players that have won British Opens before missed the cut. Zach Johnson, Tiger Woods, Tom Lehman, uh, Lowry, Clark, McElroy, Mickelson, you know, Patrick Harrington, who, in addition to Tiger Woods, has won it twice before. So you look at guys like Oosthuizen, Molinari, Stuart Sink, Hendrick Stenson, Jordan Spieth, and Spieth is the only one of the group that's in the top ten. So odds are your British Open champion of 2019 is probably going to be a first-time winner. Now, you can put money on Spieth. A lot of money was put on Rory McIlroy, best favorites coming in at 7-1 odds. He didn't make the cut. I don't think a lot of people were believing so much in Tiger Woods. Obviously, great job winning the Masters. You know, it showed that he was back. He should be taken seriously. You look at Tiger Woods being in any major, no matter how old he is, no matter what he's been through, you know there's always a chance that he could go out there and win the tournament. But you look at the quality of past champions. And that's one of the things I always like to look at. You know, you look at the, the British Open champions, and there's this handful of guys that have won it more than once. Nobody's won it more than Harry Varden, who won his last British Open in 1914. He won it six times. James Braid, John Henry Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Tom Watson have won it five times. And Watson is the only one that's really within a generation or two of play. And the last one he won was 1983. You got a, a father-son combination, Tom Morris Sr. and Tom Morris Jr., who won it all before the start of the 20th century. Uh, Willie Park, Walter Hagen, Bobby Locke, all four-time winners. But you look at amongst contemporaries, you know, Woods has won it three times. Harrington, as I just mentioned, won it twice. Ernie Els is another two-time winner. But you wonder in this day and age, all the talk that's been out there, giving a lot of credit and love to the golfers of this generation. And we talk about the young golfers that are taking a sport by storm, whether it's a Spieth, whether it's a McElroy, whether it's Brooks Kepka. And you look at the history of the British Open, and you don't have anybody that is really staking a claim to it. And you wonder if a Kepka could win this tournament, which he's never won before, and maybe do it more than once. You know, McElroy. Obviously, what you call his home course or someplace within the parameters of where he lives. That's why he was such a favorite coming in. Can he win a second one? He well, won't be this year. You know, Spieth. You know, can he become a two-time champion? 
you know, Phil Mickelson didn't make the cut. Woods didn't make the cut. You know, could a guy like Stenson or St. Garustazen or Molinari? I mean, Molinari's you know, had a good year. He obviously won the tournament last year. He's been up there within the top 10, top 20 of a lot of the majors over the last couple of years. Maybe he could take a shot at it. See how it ends up working out. A little bit of recap of the show today. As always, I do want to thank everybody for tuning in. We talked about Brennan Miller, an umpire. And usually when I mention umpires, it's a lot of negative vibes. And I, I'm very big in wanting umpires to be held accountable. You know, you got players that make a mistake, a manager maybe does a bad job, or the general manager doesn't make the right moves, or anybody in the world of sports, let alone baseball, makes a mistake or doesn't do their job correctly, and they got to face the music. Their name gets thrown out there. They're known for the mistakes that they make. You find in umpires, they're able to hide under an anonymous name almost and just have a great job done by their brethren and by the umpire's union and even the commissioner's office to a certain extent to not have their names thrown out there. Now, Yankees fans might not like Brendan Miller too much. And Brendan Miller might have missed a call in the Yankees-Rays game the other day. Brett Gardner didn't like it. Obviously, Aaron Boone didn't like it. The hot mics, you know about what Aaron Boone has known, is known for now. He knows his team is a bunch of effing savage, savages. Aaron Boone may have needed or wanted to get thrown out of the game in that spot, but Brendan Miller conducted himself like an umpire should conduct himself. Obviously, not all calls are going to go everybody's way. You're not going to be able to please everybody. In a day and age where we deal with the ump show, day in and day out, where these umpires go out of their way to pump their chest out and say, hey, look at me. You guys work for me. I'm the friggin' boss. You know, Ron Culpas of the world saying, I'm going to do anything that I want. You have an umpire that handled himself like a true professional. Was basically taking lip for minutes upon minutes from Aaron Boone until a point where it actually became a distraction to the game. And you can see him, his mask, still on, still facing the pitcher, still trying to go on with the game. And then out of the corner of his mouth saying, I hear you, I heard you, Aaron, I heard you, Aaron, enough. At some point, you know, either he's going to stop or he's not going to stop. And obviously Aaron Boone wasn't going to stop, so he threw him out of the game. And Boone got a little close, may have made a little contact with him, which results in the suspension, which I don't disagree with. He can't make contact with the ump. But also, it does speak to something to actually sit there and be berated umpire for as long as he did. You know, Bobby Cox had a tendency to do that. Tony LaRusso would do a little bench jockey, and Earl Weaver was very good at it. And sometimes an umpire that's sensitive will make a big deal about it. But you could tell this umpire actually went out of his way to try to stop and defuse the situation. It just wasn't going to work out. But if he was Bob Davidson, if he was Joe West, if he was Angel Hernandez, if he was Tom Hallian, if he was any one of these jerks that go out there and make the game about them, and I understand they are under a lot of pressure. Their job is to officiate. Their job is to keep things at a respectable level. 
I get it. I understand it. I totally do. I feel their pain a little bit. But they should take a page out of the book of Brendan Miller and the way that he conducted himself the other day in that tough situation. And it doesn't matter if you've been umpiring for 30 years. Maybe you could learn something from the way this true professional acted the other day. The Mets beat writers, honestly, I don't think we've hit a cesspool of bad beat writers in the history of sports, let alone with the Mets. Obviously, we yearn for the days of Marty Noble, and obviously, and even, even the likes of Adam Rubin. You remember Adam Rubin being called out by Omar Minaya for wanting a job in the Mets front office. But you know what? Adam Rubin did a good job covering the team. He gave you more positive stories than negative stories. Yes, he'd give you a negative story if it needed to be posted, but he didn't have this passive-aggressive bullshit that guys like Anthony DiComo and the people that cover the Mets throw out there right now. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to play a fake tough guy. And no wonder Mickey Callaway and Jason Vargas got to be restrained from going after the Mets beat. Maybe, it's, maybe something should be brought up to the fact of the way they treat the team and the way that they conduct themselves. They're certainly not Brendan Miller's. Spoke a little bit about Larry Holmes and Muhammad Ali, two of the greatest heavyweight champions in the history of the sport. October 2nd, 1980, which was called the last hurrah. Expected to maybe be Ali's last fight. Of course, he took one more against Trevor Burbick. You know, didn't need to happen. You know, Larry Holmes would have preferred not to fight Ali, especially in that spot. Ali maybe needed the money. But two of the heavyweight champions that are remembered as amongst the best the sport has ever seen. It's nice to see two champions go at it against each other. It's just a shame he didn't get to see the best Ali. And nobody should have expected to see the best of Ali from the stage he was over the course of his career. Talked a little bit about the British Open, the series of champions that are playing in the tournament today that didn't make the cut. Only, what's it, five of them, five past winners are still in the mix. Spieth, Stenson, Sink, Oosthuizen, last year's champ, Molinari. See how it ends up turning out. Do want to thank everybody for tuning in. The Pass Ball Show brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located on Naog Avenue, Green Ridge Street, Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, 570-800-8115 if you're interested in getting a hold of them. I did want to throw this out there because I thought it was uh, it was worth bringing up. And St. Aloysius Church does a, does a great job of putting these public service announcements out there. And you've heard a little bit over the course of the media kind of bringing this up. And I think it is worth mentioning again. The New Jersey Independent Victim Compensation Program. Um, it's, it's been announced that in February of this year, the Diocese of Trenton, along with other Roman Catholic dioceses in New Jersey, has established an independent victim compensation program to compensate those who, as minors, were sexually abused by a priest or deacon at the diocese. The IVCP will be open to claims, and it started June 15th. It's independently administered by experienced victim compensation experts Kenneth R. Feinberg and Camille S. Biros. Mr. Feinberg 
was the plan administrator for the federal 9-11 victim compensation program, as well as the Boston Marathon bombing compensation program. The IBCP will handle the submission, evaluation, and resolution of individual claims and will operate independently of the diocese and any church-affiliated institution. The administration of the IBCP will, will have complete autonomy to determine the eligibility of a claim with the guidelines of the established protocol. The amount of compensation for those who make a claim will be determined by the IBCP administrators. All victims, no matter when the abuse occur, are eligible to participate and all matters will be handled confidentially. Victims of clergy sexual abuse of a minor can begin the process of utilizing the program by going to www.njdiocivecp.com and reviewing the protocol for submitting a claim. It's www.njdiocivecp.com I'm sorry, I'll say it one more time, and I apologize for, you know, probably needing glasses at some point, but I'll say this one more time. www.njdiocesesibcp.com. Do want to thank everybody for tuning in. This is the Passball Show. As always, brought to you by johnpiele.com. Hope everybody enjoys their weekend. We'll be back with you next week. I'm excited going to have a little more time next week, so we'll probably do maybe two or three shows over the course of the week. Probably record a couple player interviews. I definitely have one which we're going to set up. I may make a couple calls and see if we can start getting that going on SoundCloud. Obviously, check out John Pielli on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play. You can download the podcast. Um, follow me on Twitter if you want. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.